Welcome to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Jeannie Hareska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS. Before we dive into today's episode, I do want to re-up our request to listeners. We are preparing our upcoming episode on the Supreme Court's new term and want to help answer your questions about it. If you have questions about our highest court or about upcoming cases in the new term, email us at podcast at acslaw.org. We'll try to answer as many questions as we can on our SCOTUS preview episode. Again, our email is podcast at acslaw.org. Today, I'm joined by Cliff Sloan, author of the new book, The Court at War, FDR, His Justices, and the World They Made. The book is now available and details the inner workings of a Supreme Court built by and loyal to President Franklin Roosevelt. The book can feel fantastical at times in how justices operated then compared to now, but FDR's Supreme Court played an enormous role in shaping our modern legal landscape. And as we confront today's packed Supreme Court with its hostility to precedent, there is value in studying the best and worst moments from the FDR era of our highest court. In addition to this book, Cliff Sloan is also the author of The Great Decision, Jefferson, Adams, Marshall, and the Battle for the Supreme Court. He's also a professor of constitutional law and criminal justice at Georgetown University Law Center. Professor Sloan, welcome to Broken Law. Well, thanks so much, Jeannie. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I appreciate it. It is wonderful to have you on. It is a wonderful book. So for folks who are listening to this, if they haven't picked up a copy already, I highly encourage them to do so. But I'm excited to give them even more reason to go out and grab a copy. I always like to start interviews with authors with this question, which is, why did you write this book at this time? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And um, actually, the origin of it was when I was special envoy for Guantanamo closure in the Obama administration in 2013 and 2014. And I was reading the Supreme Court cases on military detention. And of course, I read the shameful Korematsu case. And there's a case that uh, precedes Korematsu, uh, Hirabayashi, which upheld a curfew targeted against Japanese Americans. And I noticed that exactly one week before this terrible decision uh, that was the first of the anti-Japanese decisions, the Supreme Court decided West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, the famous great, eloquent opinion by Justice Robert Jackson that struck down at the height of World War II a compulsory flag salute in West Virginia public schools. And it really struck me that within seven days, within one week, you had one of the greatest civil liberties decisions in our history and one of the worst civil liberties decisions in our history. And so I got very interested in the subject of the Supreme Court during World War II. And I discovered that there's actually very little written on it as a subject. There's a ton written on FDR's battles with the courts in the 1930s, culminating in the switch in time that saved nine and the court then upholding um, FDR's programs. And there's, of course, a lot written on the Warren Court beginning in the 1950s. But there's really very, very little on the Supreme Court during World War II. So I got very interested in it. And it turns out to be quite a story. Um, so in any case, that's that's how I got into it. It's quite the story. And you you write it very well. Like It almost feels like you're reading a novel. There's such compelling characters. In, and I like how you describe it, where you really feel like you have a court that has an angel and a devil on opposite shoulders, that you have some of the greatest decisions and some of the worst within the same period of time. And you chalk it up a lot to the court's loyalty to the president. And I want to start with that. President Trump appointed three justices to our current Supreme Court, and it's considered a defining impact. It is a fraction compared to the impact that FDR had on his court. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it's very, very interesting because... You know, everybody remembers that FDR's court packing plan failed in 1937, and there was the switch in time that saved nine. But people are are not as familiar with the fact that by the summer of 1941, only four years later, he had appointed seven of the nine justices and elevated an eighth 
to chief justice. There was only one justice on the court um, as of the summer of 1941 who did not owe his position to Franklin Roosevelt. It was by far the biggest impact on the court of any president since George Washington. And as you say, Jeannie, it wasn't just the number of uh, appointments that he had, which was very dramatic, but it was also that they were extremely close to FDR. They revered him um, and they felt very much uh, a part of his circle. To me, and I mentioned this in the intro, the part of the book that just felt almost like fantasy was how political the justices are. It just felt so at odds. I mean, I had moments of kind of chuckling to myself because there are concerns now that we have justices that are too loyal to a party. But what we have in this book are are justices acting like politicians. They're giving rallying speeches and they're meeting with the president and they're meeting with senators and they're advising on legislation. It, It just feels wholly different from it is today. For folks who haven't read the book yet, talk to us about just how political most of the justices were. Yeah, now this was really um, sort of astonishing to me. I mean, I knew that justices like Frankfurter and Douglas were very close to FDR, but the extent of it and the extent of it kind of across the board for almost all of the justices was really uh, <laughs> something that I discovered and some of it in kind of, you know, digging it in the archives um, and that kind of thing. But it is definitely true that they were very engaged to uh, a, a, a very unusual degree. So first of all, as you were saying about giving speeches. So throughout 1941, when the big issue in the country is preparedness for what might be war on the one hand, and there's strong isolationist sentiment in the country on the other, and FDR's biggest priority is getting the country ready for war. And it's, a, it's, it's a, an issue that is bitterly dividing the country. Almost all of the justices are taking to the hustings, giving speeches, very emphatically supporting FDR's program and saying, we have to support uh, the president on this. And some of the speeches are explicitly coordinated with FDR and with the White House, you know, Frank Murphy was uh, one of the lesser known justices of this period. Very interesting individual. He had been uh, governor of Michigan and uh, mayor of Detroit, among other things. He was the only Catholic on the court at the time. And so in coordination with the White House, he goes to speak to the Knights of Columbus. And there was a big issue because Germany had recently invaded the Soviet Union. And so now the Soviet Union wasn't in alliance with uh, Germany anymore. But some institutions like the Catholic Church were skeptical that the Soviet Union was very much against religion. And so Frank Murphy went to reassure them that the most important thing now was anybody who was fighting against fascism and was urging them, which was the FDR policy, to be kind of embracing the Soviet Union. And afterwards, FDR sends a message to Murphy that he was tickled to death um, by his speech. But you just see this again and again with the different justices. And it wasn't only before the war. I mean, after the war, they're all out there giving speeches. Um, FDR also gives them uh, assignments and missions, both formal and informal. Formally, he assigns Justice Owen Roberts right after Pearl Harbor to head a commission to look into the lack of preparedness at Pearl Harbor. And so Roberts actually takes a two-month leave from the court. All the other members of the commission are uh, generals and admirals. He goes to Hawaii for two months, conducts this investigation. This is the biggest thing in the country, the Roberts Commission report. But also, informally, he would ask justices to do things. He sent Justice Hugo Black to his native state of Alabama to investigate whether war-related industries were suffering because of racial strife and to report back to him on it. He sent Frank Murphy to Detroit for the same purpose with regard to the automotive industry, and they were involved in making tanks and other kind of critical materials. And then he has Murphy give a national radio address on his findings on preparedness. But let me tell you the two most striking examples of this, which is that Justice James Burns had been a senator from South Carolina. He was appointed in the summer of 1941. In the fall of 1942, he actually leaves the Supreme Court because FDR says, come to the White House and be assistant president. But while he was still 
on the Supreme Court as a sitting justice in the wake of Pearl Harbor, FDR makes clear to everybody in his administration that war-related legislation has to go through Jimmy Burns. And, you know, and Burns had been kind of a parliamentary master, master tactician in the Senate. And Burns is actually working out of the White House frequently. And the Roosevelt administration names him a lead intermediary with Congress on this very important legislation, which, of course, could come before the Supreme Court. All of uh, And during all of this time, he's a sitting justice. And the other very dramatic example is that in 1944, when FDR is running for a fourth term and he's decided to get rid of his vice president, Henry Wallace. And Douglas is a leading candidate to be vice president. He actually was FDR's early favorite for it. FDR was kind of infatuated by Douglas. He loved the way Douglas told stories. Douglas was part of his poker circle. He said, and this was very, very important to FDR, that Douglas made the best martini of anybody in Washington. He also, he even talked about, he thought Douglas would have great political appeal. He talked about how his hair blew in the wind and he was out an outdoorsman and had a, a, a humble upbringing. So right up until convention week, Douglas was viewed as one of the leading candidates. FDR said he was going to leave it up to the convention, but he released a letter convention week saying he would be happy to run with either Harry Truman or William O. Douglas. He didn't name anybody else. And right up until the final balloting, Douglas was viewed as one of the leading contenders. He wasn't at the convention personally, but there were people working on his behalf there. And again, as a sitting justice, he was a leading candidate um, for vice president. And, and let me just say, Jeannie, you were also talking about the differences from today. And, you know, and obviously a lot of these things would be very much, you know, <laughs> kind of astounding to see today. But I think there are two very important lessons from this for today. And one of them is that you know, there's a lot of discussion about an ethical code for justices and ethical norms for justices. And currently they're focusing on financial issues. These involve political and policy issues. But for me, it really underscores the need for a binding code of ethics, for very strong ethical norms. And it also illustrates to me that this should not be a partisan issue, or um, it should be bipartisan, it should be nonpartisan. And I think it's very unfortunate that it's become a partisan issue. And today, the issues that have come up about an ethics code involve justices who are appointed by Republican presidents. These issues, which are very, very serious in terms of the kind of role of the court and the integrity of the court, came up with appointees of a, a Democratic president. And so it shows these issues recur. It's not a, a party issue. So that's one very important issue. But the other very important issue is it goes to the duality of the court that you were talking about. That is a tale of two courts, the best of courts and the worst of courts. And in the worst of courts, heading that list is the shameful anti-Japanese decisions such as Korematsu. And it came about in large part because the justices were unwilling to confront Franklin Roosevelt on an issue that was personally important to him and his administration. And so it shows the judicial disasters, the catastrophes that can result when justices are unwilling to stand up to the president who appointed them or to their political patrons. And I think that's an especially important lesson today when we're in a time when the positions of the justices correlate with the political party of the president who appointed them more than at any time in our history. Yeah, if you think back to the Trump administration, Trump expected his justices to be like FDR's justices. He, right? I mean, he would talk about this. Trump made comments that suggested that it was his Supreme Court. And you can argue one way or another, certainly with, you know, you made reference to the Muslim, the Muslim travel ban in the book and that comparison. And it, there are, I, I think that is a comparison worth making where it feels like a court that is ceding to the president's desire. Yes, absolutely. And really the need for judicial independence, the need to stand up to the president, you know, could not be more uh, important. And, and the need to stand up to those in the president's political corner. 
you know, of relevance today, even though President Trump is no longer in office, his the the sort of political circle around him, the the political slash legal circle that was very involved in those judicial nominations, both in terms of getting them selected and in their confirmation, are still very much a force. And so the importance of standing up to that. And part of this, and this also came up in the Muslim travel ban as well, is that, you know, Korematsu and the other anti-Japanese decisions also show the dangers of excessive deference when the government invokes national security. And the, 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 the Korematsu and the other decisions were shameful in their own right, but the government's performance in those cases, including both the Justice Department, the War Department, in terms of claiming national security on grounds that turned out to be utterly false in terms of what their submission was. So it highlights that. But also you mentioned, you know, President Trump, former President Trump and his, you know, view of his Supreme Court. The other thing I have to say, mention in that context is that we're talking about Korematsu, one of the greatest stains in Supreme Court history and in the country's history, because it permitted the incarceration of Japanese American citizens based on nothing other than their ancestry. Well, candidate Trump in 2016 invoked that as an example, positively supporting his Muslim travel ban. He said, well, Franklin Roosevelt did this. And so this is a good thing for the same reason as well. Really shocking, even in that context, that this precedent that the Supreme Court unanimously in the Muslim travel ban said it has been rejected by the verdict of history, but the candidate Trump was invoking this as a positive example. I really appreciate your book dives into DOJ's and the executive branch's mismanagement and poor judgment and deceit in a lot of these cases. And I appreciate that. It's focused on the court, but it's also focused on what the court was deferring to and why it was so problematic. Just going back to the loyalty to FDR, the one thing that was different than than now is the country was at war, right? This was in the midst of World War II. And there are some great anecdotes about how the justices were, you know, adopting, trying to not use oil, trying to embrace all of the frugalment that was part of this like patriotic commitment to the war effort. But how much of that deference that you mentioned, the deference to national security, how much of that do you think would have existed but for the war? How much of this was a court that was overly deferential to an executive because we were in the midst of World War II? Well, I think both were true. I think that, you know, the justices, again, just absolutely were enthralled by FDR. And I think under any circumstances, they would have been extremely loyal to him. And I also do think it's it's absolutely a, a very important point that the country was at war and that affected the justices very much personally as well. So I think both were at play. But this point about the justices, you know, living in a time of war, I think is both is, is very important in understanding the court. It's also very interesting because the war dominated everything for them. It dominated their personal lives, and it also dominated all of their opinions, not only the ones that explicitly related to the war, such as Korematsu, but ones across the board. And I think we'll talk in a little bit about the best of court side of the Supreme Court's legacy during World War II, where the court issued pioneering decisions in areas like reproductive rights and voting rights and protection of despised uh, religious minorities and giving government broad authority to deal with novel problems and complex crises, all of which are very, very important today. And even when when the cases didn't explicitly relate to the war, it dominated them. But on a personal level, it also completely dominated their lives. Five of the nine justices had sons serving in the military. A sixth had a son-in-law in the military. Felix Frankfurter and his wife didn't have any children. They had three English children staying with them because one of his former students from Harvard Law School, who was a lawyer in London, sent them there to get away from the bombing of London. And the Frankfurters completely adored the children and they would take them to see FDR. Frank Murphy 
who we were talking about before, went them all one better. He actually enlisted in the military in the summer of 1942. And there were newsreels in movie theaters showing him in his military uniform and going through the military routines. And then at night, going over Supreme Court petitions for cert, doing his Supreme Court work in the summer. But Justice Hugo Black, he had two sons in the military. And this weighed very heavily on Black's wife. She had severe bouts of depression throughout the war years, much of it kind of tied to her worry and anxiety about their sons. And then, as you were saying, they were all living, as all Americans were, in this bizarre Byzantine complex world of rationing and wage and price limits and these complex rationing cards. I have a picture in the book of Justice Wiley Rutledge's gasoline rationing card because they were under the same limits as everybody else. Harlan Fisk Stone was very interested in civil defense. He went to a local neighborhood civil defense meeting. He came home and wrote his sons that he was convinced that um, if there was an air raid on Washington, we were just going to have to sit back and take it because nobody had a good plan. And Stone also was the one who wrote letters complaining about how cold it was in the house because of the shortage of fuel oil due to rationing. And there were articles in the newspapers at the time advising people what to do during the blackouts at night because to protect against or to try to protect against air raids by enemy forces or make it more difficult, there was a requirement that all buildings be blacked out at night, both um, private buildings and government buildings, including the Supreme Court. And so there were newspaper articles uh, that advised uh, people to have a lit cigarette at their lips because that way in the darkness, if somebody was walking by, they would see that you were there and wouldn't bump into you. It's an interesting excuse to smoke. <laughs> well, it also shows you a difference in the times. You know, because- yeah, no, I really appreciate that description because as you know, in the worst cases and in the best cases, you really see the backdrop of the war. In the best of cases, the court very much wants to differentiate America from Nazi Germany. They want to embrace the best of democracy. And in the worst of cases, they go blind and defer to the executive and trust everything the executive tells them, Korematsu being the pinnacle of that. But I I do want to make sure we touch upon the other, the good contributions of this court, because there were many, Um, especially I, I feel like in today's day and age where we've had decades of progress on civil rights and it feels very fragile now. And that includes precedents from this era that have stood the test of time and now seem more vulnerable than ever. So let's, let's start with the flag salute case because you brought it up earlier. There were several cases in this era that dealt with Jehovah witnesses who were very prominent war objectors Why was that case such a big case in this era? Yes. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, and there's a whole series of Jehovah's Witnesses cases in the late 30s and then especially in the 40s. And the Jehovah's Witnesses were really, at that time, a despised religious minority for a number of reasons. And they they were against the war. They denounced other religions. They would come into towns and frequently be very conspicuous and very noisy, either in public or going door to door. And the Supreme Court before the war had issued an opinion by Felix Frankfurter that actually upheld a compulsory flag salute over the objections of Jehovah's Witnesses. And Jehovah's Witnesses sort of refused to salute the flag because they said it violated their religion to, you know, be paying obeisance to this graven image. And that decision by the Supreme Court actually led to a wave of terrible violence against Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, almost immediately. And and it actually shows the messaging role of the Supreme Court, which I also think is extremely important today, because the Supreme Court was deciding that compulsory flag salute case, and it was right around the time of the fall of France. And in fact, the the people at the, uh, the court, the clerks called it Felix's fall of France opinion. And it was all, you know, filled with sort of patriotic fervor. 
But the message that it sent to a lot of people in the country who were hostile to Jehovah's Witnesses was essentially, it's okay to go after them. And there were all sorts of terrible, terrible incidents. And so then in 1943, in the wake of Pearl Harbor, um, West Virginia had passed this compulsory flag salute. And so again, there was this controversy. And now it came to the Supreme Court. And in this justly famous opinion by Robert Jackson, the Supreme Court overruled the previous opinion and sided with the Jehovah's Witnesses and sent the message, the enduring message, that in this country, no government official can tell you what you have to believe and how you have to act in terms of kind of paying obeisance to certain symbols. And that was a very, very important message the you know famous line from it, Justice Jackson says, that's a fixed star in our constitutional constellation. But the war context also was very, very important for this. And, and I think sometimes that's also not fully appreciated. In Justice Jackson's famous opinion, he very explicitly drew a contrast between that protection of civil liberties and what he called our totalitarian enemies. And he even pointed out in the opinion, the similarity between the compulsory flag salute that had the children standing like this, and I have a picture of it in the book, to the Nazi flag salute. And it was interpreted that way, both while the case was pending and afterwards, that this was a very important contrast that we were drawing between our system, our constitutional system that protects even these very unpopular people and the uh, sort of fascists and totalitarians and authoritarians that we were fighting. One of the interesting things of that case for me was how quickly the court flipped. And, and you just noted this, right? The court had made a decision just a few years earlier saying, no, it's okay to compel this. And then mere years later, the court very openly said, we are changing our position on this. And in today, we think it's a really big deal for the court to overturn precedent. And this court in current 2023 is doing it at an alarming rate. But in in your book, there were two examples of the court overturning itself in short order for good reason, right? For the court in order to end up on the right side of history. That was one of them. And the other one was Smith v. All right. Talk to me about that. And also, again, how quickly the court flipped on itself. So, yeah. So let me say a few things about that. I mean, first, just on the West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett. In that case, there were a few different reasons that I think went into that very prompt reversal. One of them had to do with there was a change of personnel on it. And some of the people who had been on the earlier court had left. And some of the people, Robert Jackson and Wiley Rutledge, who had been critical of the flag salute, the earlier one had joined. Some of the justices who had joined the earlier one, you know, such as Black and Douglas and Murphy, had previously signaled that they were having second thoughts about it. And it's debated what led them to uh, second thoughts about it. I think that it's the, the violence that was unleashed against Jehovah's Witnesses, I think is something that had an impact and that some of the justices were, were somewhat horrified by it. And then the other thing, which is just a background fact, and you know whether it played a role or not, people can debate. But it was a very different situation geopolitically at the time, because at the time of the fall of France was when there was this extreme worry that the whole continent basically had fallen to the Nazis and England stood alone. And it was a very, very you know, frightening time. 1943, it's the midst of the war, and that's very important, and the outcome's not guaranteed. But the tide of the war seemed to seemed to be shifting also. So it wasn't that kind of crisis. So there was a whole series of things that went into that. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. As we discuss so often on this podcast, our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By supporting ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, and our advocacy for Supreme Court reform. You also become a member of our nationwide network. 
Learn more about ACS by visiting our website at acslaw.org. And now back to the conversation. I appreciate how cognizant the court was of violence across the country. I actually really appreciated that point because, again, thinking about today's day and age, there have been times where this court seems to not want to think about what happens outside of its own walls and the consequences of its decisions. But the FDR court, in certain circumstances, again, it's just like the duality of what they choose to care about and not was interesting. But there are cases like that where they seemed particularly cognizant of the impact that they would have. Yes, I do think they were very much aware of that now. And, you know, look, I I think very strongly that, you know, justices and Supreme Court are part of the time that they're living in. They're part of Washington, D.C. In my other book that you mentioned with Marbury versus Madison, people sometimes don't appreciate the degree to which that was really embedded in the political wars of the time and how much it was really a kind of Washington story. But I also think, you know, it's, you can't oversimplify it. It's not one dimensional in the sense that, okay, these events are happening, that then, you know, is immediately equating it to that. I mean, the justices are also sort of, you know, filtering everything through their jurisprudential approaches and their jurisprudential views, but it's all part of the dynamic. I mean, I think it would be simplistic to say, it's it's just a question of what, of what's happening, and I think it would be simplistic to think, oh, that plays no role. They're in an ivory tower. That plays no role. You know, the interesting thing, one point that we haven't touched on is that there were these all these FDR justices, all of whom had close relationships with them. Again, seven appointments. He elevated an eighth. You know, seven of the justices he had appointed. He had elevated an eighth to be chief justice. And initially, people thought they were all going to be marching in lockstep. And that wasn't true at all. And sort of bitter divisions emerged. And to some extent, one block headed by Hugo Black and one block headed by Felix Frankfurter. And Frankfurter was extremely upset that he wasn't sort of leading the court and leading all the justices. He was very upset at Black and Douglas and the others in those in that block. And Frankfurter had written that earlier decision upholding the compulsory flag salute. And Frankfurter kept a journal throughout these years, and he records every grievance and resentment and perceived insult. And he recounts in that journal his belief that Black and Douglas are acting just because they read in the newspapers the criticism of the court's opinion. So, you know, that was also something that came up with the justices themselves. And, and you know, Frankfurter said that very disdainfully, uh, essentially, that they're doing it because they read the newspapers. Well, I think the, the infighting and kind of pettiness of the court is something that you see continuously. Anytime you have such powerful people and such an elite group, I think you're going to end up with those really interesting dynamics internally. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, it's always true. You know, there's the famous line by Oliver Wendell Holmes that the uh, Supreme Court justices are like nine scorpions in a bottle. They're all there for life. But I think it was especially true of these Roosevelt justices because they all had lived these large public lives, um, you know, very, very different from today's court. You had former senators, a former governor, former U.S. attorneys general, former chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, a former leading public intellectual. Only one of them, Wiley Rutledge, had been a federal appellate judge. Such a dramatic contrast to the court today, where all of them, except for Justice Kagan, had been federal appellate judges. And so and and there's there's a lot to think about with that kind of broad uh, public background that is sort of very very extensive experience on large public issues. Um, but one consequence of that was that to some extent each of them really felt that they could and should be the leader of the court, and none more so than Felix Frankfurter. I mean, he thought it was his natural you know fate and destiny to lead the other justices and they would fall in line behind him. And the other justices didn't quite see it that way. And that really bothered Frankfurter. But he had, you know, spent his career 
writing about the court, articles and books. He had been close to these icons like Holmes and Brandeis, and he thought he was just going to be the leader of the court. He really resented it when he when the other justices didn't let him do that. But I wanted to get back. You were mentioning Smith versus Allwright, and I did want to get back to that uh, again on the you know some of the very important decisions th- that this court issued where it recognized and protected and expanded constitutional rights explicitly in contrast to the totalitarians that were our enemies. And Smith versus Allwright was an important um, voting rights case where the Supreme Court struck down the all-white primary in Texas and throughout the South in the Democratic primary. It was Thurgood Marshall's first big victory in a case that he argued in the Supreme Court. Actually, his first Supreme Court arguments occurred during the war, and he had won an earlier one on a kind of technical ground. But this was uh, his first big victory, very important for real-world political consequences in the, in the South, and a very important door-opening decision on voting rights. And again, very much a part of this context was that we were at war with the regime premised on racial supremacy. And that was very much how the case was perceived as it was coming to the court and how it was perceived when the court struck down the all-white primary. And it was a time where there was a sort of great civil rights ferment and activity during World War II. You know, the African-American community had embraced what it called the double V campaign, victory against fascism abroad and racism at home. And and there were civil rights demonstrations during this period. And also the dislocations in the economy with so many people being off at work meant that black workers could enter industries and positions that they'd previously been excluded from. In some instances, that led to a very ugly white backlash. There were things called hate strikes where white workers walked off the job. And there were actually in a number of cities, there was white violence against blacks. But this was all very much a part of the context of this case coming to the Supreme Court in the midst of the war. And it was very much you know, a part of how the court perceived it. And again, it was one of those situations where the court, in order to decide Smith the way it did had to overturn a previous Supreme Court decision, again, in in relatively short order. Yes. You know, Smith was an example, and we see some of this with the current court also, where there was a sort of strained distinction, you know, to a large extent, you know, from previous opinions, but it amounted to the same thing. And yeah, I want to get back to that sort of fundamental question that you were asking about with precedent, because certainly this court, the Roosevelt justices were definitely willing to overturn precedents and in a lot of areas take a very, very different view. And some of them, like Justice Owen Roberts, who had been the switch in time that saved nine, he was appointed by Herbert Hoover. Um, he was especially bothered by this. And he you know, dissented in Smith versus Allwright, the voting rights case. And he had the famous line that it was saying that the previous opinion was like a railroad ticket that's good for one day only. And so he was very, very much bothered by it. But let me tell you my own view, which I think is very important, which is that, you know, I think in considering precedents and overturning precedents, it's very important to con- to consider the substance of what the court is doing. And I think there's a very significant difference when the court is, for example, you know, expanding constitutional rights and protections and taking away constitutional rights that people have had for decades. You know, it's interesting in the court packing context, remember that FDR, his feigned justification, which nobody really believed from the time he said it, was that, well, it was because the older justices couldn't keep up with their work. And so you needed to appoint a new justice for every justice who was over 70. And and of course, that wasn't it. He was bothered by the, the, the substance of the decisions. And Robert Jackson, who was then in the Roosevelt administration, defended the court packing plan, but he defended it on a very different ground. He said, no, I'm not going to go with that justification. We have to talk about the substance of what the court is doing in striking down all of these laws that are 
you know, protecting workers, addressing complex economic issues. That's why we need to enlarge the court. So I, I think when we're talking about precedent and overturning precedent, I think it's very important to consider the substance as well as the fact of, you know, kind of how the prior decisions are being treated. I couldn't agree with you more. And I actually, I've been thinking about this a lot because I, th- I think everybody who's a progressive kind of has in that back of their mind, Dobbs could be overturned, right? They, what we need is another, if they can overturn Roe, we can overturn Dobbs kind of thing. And the question is, there's a desire to respect precedent, but also a recognition that bad cases need to be overturned. Yeah, I think that's very important. And again, it's not just, you know, if they can do it, we can do it, you know, as a, as a, as a sort of tit for tat. It's just, it's, it's exactly what you're saying, that, you know, bad decisions should be overturned. And, you know, again, and, and in the compulsory flag salute context is a great example of that. So I think it is very, very important to kind of keep the substance in mind as well. Yeah, I... I actually appreciated those parts of this book where the court was willing to what felt like in rapid succession overturn itself. Because again, we're living in an era where I think we're getting several decisions where a lot of us are wondering how quickly can this decision be overturned? A couple other things though, before there's so much to discuss. And so again, I just want to encourage folks to pick up a copy of the book. The book is the court at war. It is available wherever you get your books. So go out and get a copy today, but a couple other things to consider. And again, thinking about today's court versus the FDR court, today's court is increasingly hostile towards the executive branch and wanting to to put executive agencies into this tiny, tiny, tiny little box and preferably to be forgotten entirely. FDR's court was very deferential to executive agencies in the sense of we should be trusting their judgment, their expertise. Talk to me about the FDR's court's perspective in that regard and how it contrasts with today's court. Yeah, absolutely. And I, a very important point. So this was the issue that probably united the FDR justices more than any other, because it was against the pre-1937 background of the court striking down all sorts of executive actions, as well as congressional actions, and state laws. And the FDR justices believed that the government should have broad authority to address complex economic and social um, problems and novel crises. And in the war context, it was especially true with, you know, the, we were talking about the rationing and the price controls and the uh, and wage controls. The most sweeping the control of the economy that had been asserted. And in a series of cases, the justices gave broad authority and deference to it. And, and what we see today is a court that's going very much in the other direction on that in a way that, you know, as you know, is extremely troublesome and worrisome on issues ranging from climate change to COVID responses with this creation of a completely new invented doctrine, the major questions doctrine, with a uh, a renewed interest in some of the doctrines that had been discarded by the FDR um, justices and rejected by them, such as an aggressive um, approach to non-delegation, a limit on how much delegation Congress can make to the executive branch. And so it could not be more diametrically opposed. And one of the things that it illustrates in all, in a number of these areas, and this is certainly one of them, the decisions that the Roosevelt justices made during World War II really were very important cornerstones, very important foundations for our constitutional architecture for the next three quarters of a century. And on all fronts, it's under fire today. And so that legacy, which in my opinion is part of the best of courts, the very, very important positive legacy forged in the war against fascism in this existential fight for freedom and our constitutional democracy is very much under threat today. And so certainly that's one area we're talking about voting rights and Smith versus all right as a very, very important kind of 
door opening decision for voting rights. And of course, we have a whole series of decisions that reflect very much a door closing approach. Shelby County did a very, as a very major uh, case in that. And, you know, you can go through the different areas and you can see that. I mean, one we haven't talked about is reproductive rights, where there's a very important precedent um, there. And maybe that that's worth kind of highlighting, which is the, the case of Skinner versus Oklahoma, which was in 1942, where the Supreme Court struck down a compulsory sterilization law. And under that law, Oklahoma forced sterilization for anybody who had been convicted of three or more crimes of moral turpitude. And they construed that very broadly to include, you know, everyday crimes like robbery and and burglary. And there was this challenge to it. And the Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice William O. Douglas, struck down the compulsory sterilization law. And it emphasized that there is a fundamental liberty interest in deciding whether you're going to have a child or not. That's in the compulsory sterilization context. And then it struck it down on equal protection grounds because the law didn't apply to white collar crimes like tax evasion and political corruption. But this recognition of a fundamental liberty interest in reproductive choice was the first time the Supreme Court recognized it. And it was a very, very important decision. Again, the war context was very important because as the case came to the Supreme Court, the contrast with the Nazis program, with Hitler's program of forced sterilization to purify the race was very prominent. The prisoners challenging the compulsory sterilization very publicly stated, if this is upheld, it will represent the the Hitlerization of American law. And Douglas, in his opinion, said that in evil or reckless hands, sterilization can lead to the disappearance of entire categories of people. And it was very clear exactly what and who he was talking about. And Skinner then became very important in reproductive rights and other um, personal liberty issues. It was relied on in Roe versus Wade and other reproductive choice decisions. It was relied on in the same-sex marriage case. It was relied on in the intermarriage case. And in Dobbs itself, the dissenters point to Skinner as one of the landmark opinions that in the dissenters' view is very much threatened by the reasoning and holding of Dobbs itself. So it's another example of how There's a very important decision recognizing and protecting constitutional rights in the war context that had an enormous impact for many decades and is now, you know, very much under threat by the current Supreme Court. I want to make one last note, which is it's it's hard to read this book and not recognize. And this is endemic of the moment in history that it's a book about a lot of white guys. And that, again, it's a moment in time. But I did just want, there were two notes in the book that I I did take note of. One is that it was during this era that the court, or I should say a justice, hired the first woman law clerk. It did not mean that suddenly women made up a good portion of law clerks, but the first one was hired. Lucille Lohman was hired during this time. And then you also note in the book that the first black law clerk William Coleman was was not hired until 1948. This is a part of history. But as you wrote the book, how did you think of this component of it, where you have a court that is really making some landmark decisions on civil rights, but it's being driven by a, a white male court? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting and important point. And, you know, Lucille Lohman she was, as you point out, she was the first woman law clerk. She was hired by Justice Douglas, directly tied to the war issue, is because so many of the people who would have been the usual pool for his law clerks were in the military. And so somewhat reluctantly, but he, he hired this woman as the law clerk. And there are all sorts of issues about the degree to which she did or didn't kind of fit in with the other male law clerks and kind of how they treated her. But the other thing which shows you how it was tied to the, you know, sort of special circumstances of the war is that there was not another woman law clerk until the 1960s, you know, so this was a kind of one off during the war. But to to your point, it's very interesting because a number of these justices on racial issues and civil rights issues 
were very liberal, you know, and they had been involved with the NAACP. And, you know, Justice Wiley Rutledge, not a very well-known justice, but he was a very liberal and progressive justice. But just this sort of illustrates the point, you know, every now and then I would come across something that really made you realize the difference in the in the time and the culture. So in, in his files, there's a, an article where it, that has a big picture and an article about a DC bar annual meeting and the entertainment. And it talks about Justice Wiley Rutledge in attendance and the attorney general and the solicitor general. And he's very prominent lawyers on the stage and the picture in the Washington Post and, you know, without any sense of, you know, criticism or anything else, is these very prominent lawyers in blackface. And this was the kind of highlight of the entertainment at this D.C. bar dinner. And it just really, you know, shows you, obviously, to today's eyes, extremely offensive and disturbing. But here, you know, is Justice Wiley Rutledge, who was on issues, was pretty sympathetic to civil rights. But it was just, as you say, it was a, it was a, a bunch of white guys living in the world that they were living in, which had, you know, sort of, you know, very different standards and mores. Yeah, and as we talk about why we need diversity on the court, there were moments where you make such, you bring in the details of these inner workings, where you wonder what would the conversation have been like if a diverse court had taken on that case? Yeah. It's just a question that will perpetually be asked. No, and I think a good example of that also, maybe with Korematsu. And, you know, maybe if there was a justice who had the, would have had kind of greater sensitivity to what it was like to kind of, you know, single out a group solely based on ancestry and sort of none of them. I mean, you know, now it's true, you know, Frankfurter, of course, had come as an immigrant and he was Jewish and he, in his sort of angry descent from the compulsory flag salute case, where he was objecting to the overruling of his opinion, he talked about being Jewish and how, you know, he, of course, as a, as, a, as a member of that religion, he would be sensitive to persecution. Other justices wanted to take, wanted him to take it out. And in Smith versus Allwright, striking down the all-white primary, it was initially assigned to Frankfurter, and Jackson actually went to him and went to Stone and said, no, this shouldn't be assigned to him because he's Jewish, he's from New England, at times he's supported Republicans. All of that means it won't go down well with the Southern Democrats. And for that reason, Stone reassigned it to Stanley Reed, who was from Kentucky. But as a general matter, the justices really didn't have the experience of kind of, you know, being the victims of discrimination or really that sort of firsthand experience of it. I appreciate so much the details that you bring forth in this book about all of those dynamics. And so again, I'll conclude by saying you should go read the book. (laughs) The book is The Court at War. It is available wherever you get your books. And Professor Sloan, thank you so much for stopping by and chatting with us about it today. Thank you, Jeannie. I really appreciate it. It's been great to have this conversation with you. And thanks so much to our listeners for checking out Broken Law. If you're enjoying the show, you can help us bring it to more listeners by recommending it to a friend and leaving us a five-star review. And make sure to follow us on social media at ACS Law on Twitter, at American Constitution Society on Instagram, and using hashtag Broken Law Podcast. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not. 